question for us to consider as we turn to the Word of God is really this. Humanly speaking, what, what is it that hinders a person from coming to Christ? Or to put it another way, why do people reject Jesus Christ? Is it Jesus who puts up walls and obstacles? And the answer really is hardly. Matthew eleven twenty eight. we read one of the most earnest and open-ended invitations from our Lord to the lost, whereby he unequivocally declares, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We noted a few weeks ago that this idea of rest he's offering, it's not just one of peace and relaxation, but rest of, from striving after salvation, of working hard to try to earn your way, so to speak, as well as a, a rest from the warfare of God against the sinner. The Bible tells us that, that the Lord God is angry at the sinner all day long. His wrath burns uh, against wickedness and ungodliness. And even with the world around us, we see that as evil and, and wickedness is perpetuating, God is not pleased by this. And so... For those who do come to Christ, for those who do have their sins forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, they have rest. Rest for their souls, rest from striving, and rest from the warfare of God against the sinner. Those who come to Christ find everlasting rest. And so why don't people come to Him? Well, maybe it's that they don't know who He is. And that's certainly possible on some level, yet all throughout the Gospels we see account after account of Jesus displaying His wisdom and His power and His glory. We see Him displaying His his perfect wisdom and revelation of His teaching, His awesome power to heal and to save people, and really His majestic glory displayed to all creation, testifying to the truth of who He really is. That Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, come to earth as the anointed Messiah to seek and to save that which has been lost. Yet so many reject Him as He comes. Why? Here's the answer, again, humanly speaking. We know that there are theological realities behind all of this, but in terms of at face value, why does a person reject Christ? Here it is. The reason people reject Jesus Christ is because they love their sin and don't want to be told that they're dying in it. That's why the world hates Jesus. Because they love their sin and they don't want to hear the truth about what their sin is actually doing. That it's an offense to God, that it's a cancer to their own soul, and that it's an affront to the righteousness of God displayed in the world. They do not want to hear the truth. And so they stop their ears, they they close their eyes, and they try to oppose and attack and destroy any truth teller, any, any uh, exemplification of truth. They try to destroy it because they love their sin. And in so doing, they harden their heart against the Lord. And that's the very thing that we see that the Lord seizes on in Matthew chapter 12 as he engages head on with the most powerful group of religious leaders in all of Israel. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to Matthew chapter 12 in your copy of Scripture. It's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel. This really, there's, there's a theme here that runs throughout all of this portion of Scripture, the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, and that's really the theme of the, the gentleness and the kindness of the Lord expressed most definitively in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, but really carried forward in the, the following verses. 
At the beginning of chapter 12, however, the Pharisees, they go after Jesus and his disciples over allegedly, allegedly violating the Sabbath by walking through a field and and picking little heads of grain, rolling it between their fingers and having a little snack. Something that's totally permissible in the Bible, yet the Pharisees attack them for violating the Sabbath. Jesus responds by teaching them the purpose, the true purpose of the Sabbath, to give God's people rest and not to burden them with law. And this was really a kindness of God to them. The Sabbath is a kindness of God to his people. And then Jesus further illustrates this kindness by healing a man with a withered hand. On the Sabbath, he goes into the temple and there's a man who's, who's, been, uh, who, who's deformed in his hand. He's got a, a withered hand. And Jesus heals him. And despite their accusation that he's violating the Sabbath law, he declares to them, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Healing this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath is a good thing to do. And Jesus rebukes them for that. Well, how do they respond? Do they respond by saying, you know what? You're right. We see this clearly in the Scriptures. We see the intention of God. We see the loving kindness of God in the rest of the Sabbath. Is that how they respond? No. Chapter 12, verse 14 says that the Pharisees went out and counseled together against Him as to how they might destroy Him. They see the revelation of truth. They love their sin, their legalism, their their law-keeping. They love it so much that they harden their heart against the Lord Himself and they plot about how they're going to destroy Him in the future. They harden their hearts. But Jesus keeps on ministering to the people and He heals every afflicted person that comes to Him. The Bible says over and over again, people come to Him and He healed them all. He did not discriminate. When people came to him hurting, he, did, he had no discrimination whatsoever. He healed all the people that came to him. But he did this in a, stealth, a stealthy fashion, undercover, in order that he might fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 42, that he would demonstrate through his own ministry a gentleness and a humility that is inherent in, Christ's, or in God's chosen servant, the one who would come to save his people. So even the very nature of And the character of his ministry demonstrates and fulfills prophecy. Yet the Pharisees, in their hardness of heart, they continue to stalk him. They stalk him and they look for opportunities to destroy him. And in verse 22, they see a chance. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. We're going to begin with this. Verse 22 introduces us to one of the the many people who Jesus Uh, was brought to Jesus to be healed. We read many accounts in Scripture of Jesus healing all kinds of ailments. And you read the Gospels and you see over and over again, lots of kinds of people come to Him with various conditions. It wasn't just one kind of illness or one kind of problem. Everything from from demon possession to, to hemorrhaging to limbs that weren't working to eyes that weren't working to all kinds of problems that were brought to Jesus and He healed them all. And they range from relatively mild to pretty severe. 
On the more mild side was an example here in Matthew, or Matthew 12, 10 of a man with a withered hand. Now certainly for him that was a big deal, but a person with a, with a hand that doesn't work right, that's not a life and death situation. And if he's had this for a long time, it's certainly not life-threatening. It, it might not even have been painful. Maybe it was not a painful thing. We don't know. But that was certainly one of the more um, milder cases of healings. But then you, you, you have a, the other range of it. The other side of the scope is those with very severe conditions. And certainly the, the most severe and the worst of all these conditions will be a person who has died. So Jesus healed people completely all the way in, even into death and restores people from death to life. We think about, there's many cases of this, the most famous being Lazarus in John chapter 11. We even see the story elsewhere where Jesus, he follows a funeral procession, goes up to this person who's died, comforts the mother, then raises the son from the dead. And so Jesus was prone to, to healing and to raising people from the dead. And, and again, from, from those two extremes, a person with a very mild deformity versus a person who is dead and is in need of, of, of resurrection, Inside of the parameters of that are many, many other kinds of, of healings and other kinds of experiences of suffering. People came to Jesus all the time in sheer desperation with nowhere else to turn. For many people, Jesus was their last option. They tried every possible cure. They've seen every doctor. They've gone to every, every uh, witch and magician and everything they could possibly do. They've tried everything And then when Jesus comes to town and they hear that he can heal people, in desperation they go to him because they have no hope left. And there was hardly anyone more afflicted in the gospel accounts than this man right here. Matthew records that he was demon-possessed. Demon-possessed. Now, we don't know if he was blind and mute because he was demon-possessed, or in addition to it. We don't know. That's not clear in the text. But we do know that regardless of the situation, this poor man was miserable. Miserable. And I want to just confess to you, as I studied this out and contemplated the reality of this man, I was moved to tears. And I, I, I want you to see what I see here. The first thing about this man is that he was blind. He was blind. This is already a challenge because... So much, so if everybody here that I'm aware of uh, can see at least uh, somewhat. I know some of you have issues with, with sight and things that are, are fuzzy at times. But for the most part, everybody I'm aware of here can see. And we, we rely on our sense of sight. What you can see, uh, it makes a difference to you. And those who, who are blind, their whole world changes. As soon as the lights go out and, and you have nothing you can see then all your other senses have to compensate for the loss of sight. We take that for granted, I think, far too often. But this man was blind. He couldn't see. But the second problem with this, this this ailment working against him, is that he's also mute. He can't talk. So he's blind and he's mute. Now, we don't know if he's mute because he's also deaf. That oftentimes will happen. A person can't hear and therefore they don't know how to speak. They might be able to make some sounds, but they can't hear to make any kind of a cognitive sound. So we don't know if he's mute because he's deaf or simply because his vocal cords don't work. We don't know. But here's the problem. He's unable to speak. He's unable to see. He can't communicate to anybody what are his needs. He can't tell anybody 
I'm hungry, feed me. He can't see and point to food and say, I want that. He can't say, I'm thirsty. He can't tell anybody if he's hurt. He can't tell anybody if he's scared. This man is trapped in himself, unable to tell, excuse me, unable to tell anybody where he's really at. If he could see, he could at least motion, but he can't. And unable to do both, he is trapped in a miserable, maddening existence of not being able to have any of his needs met. And not being able to communicate is the most frustrating experience. We experience it when we have little tiny children, don't we? When our small child, right, one years old, they don't know how to speak yet. They can't express what their needs are, so all they do is point and scream. And they get frustrated. They get very frustrated, don't they? I know my child does right now. It's very frustrating. But read the story of Helen Keller, if you ever can. A woman who was both blind and deaf and and struggled to communicate. And and the story of her her learning how to communicate with somebody uh, changed everything. Uh, And we have a, a wonderful account of her life. But she was severely afflicted until she could learn how to communicate. But this man is suffering even more than that. Even more than that, because added to the problem of not being able to see, not being able to talk, unable to communicate, the Bible tells us he's also demon-possessed. He's demon-possessed. Some demon is indwelling him and afflicting him. We see many accounts of demon possession in Scripture. Examples of their behavior include all kinds of things, such as screaming and hurting themselves, hurting other people throwing themselves into the ground, into fires, cutting themselves, or even worse than that. And so all the different examples of those who are struggling with demon possession, you know it's a miserable experience. And so you have this blind, mute, afflicted man who is beyond help, who cannot express himself, and who by this very possession of this demon is being driven to the point of absolute misery but then someone brings him to Jesus. I can only imagine how Jesus responded when he saw this poor man coming to him. What it, what it must have been like and possibly even what he said. I don't dare speculate, but when you read the words of Jesus to other people, maybe he said something like this. Come to me, my child, and I'll help you. And yes, this man did not have ears to hear but you know that Jesus was speaking to his heart. Come to me, my child. Come to me. I will help you. Every parent's heart breaks when their child is hurting. When their child is frustrated and just can't find peace and can't find relaxation and can't find comfort. And so what does Jesus do for this man? The Bible says he healed him. He healed him. The demon is cast out. His eyes are restored. His vocal cords are opened up. And what happens? The text says, the mute man spoke and saw. The most understated text you could possibly write for this occurrence, right? This man spoke and he saw. It's not hard to think of the words of Psalm 51, 14 and 15. Deliver me, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing your righteousness. Is that what this man did? 
when he could finally see and finally speak and finally had his senses. This man's first sight, his first sight was the face of Jesus staring at him and no doubt smiling at him. And his first words must have been those of rejoicing. How could they not have been? Praise the Lord. Can you imagine being tormented in your heart and in your mind, hearing voices and being tormented and possibly even hurting yourself? The man must have been covered with sores and bruises and cuts. And finally he can see. He he has rest for his soul for the first time in his life, most likely. And then we see the reaction of the crowd. And I'm speculating here, just as an expositor, that based on the reaction of the crowd, they were not expecting this man to be healed. And most likely, this is a man that they had known was troubled for a long time. Some total stranger walks up and gets healed. You're thinking, great for that guy. But a person that you know, who's been afflicted, who's been to every doctor in town, whose family's probably struggling, when they bring this man to Jesus and he heals him, the the kid who's been struggling his whole life, how do they respond? The text says they were amazed. The Greek word is existanto. Literally means put out of place. They experience some kind of an existential reality. They're put out of their place. One scholar renders this. They were knocked out of their senses. Knocked out of their senses. This man was so terribly afflicted and was healed so instantly and so completely, they were shocked. What did we just see? What just happened? I've known that kid my whole life and I didn't think he was ever going to get better. How did he do that? They were amazed. Not just the fact that he was healed, but at the fact of who healed him. Who is this? Jesus, the disciples earlier on, who is this that who, the, where the, the winds and the seas obey him? Who is this that heals people been afflicted? Who is this that opens the eyes of the blind and loosens the tongue of the mute and stops the ears of the deaf? This was no parlor trick. Nobody could fake this. This was, not, this was a bona fide healing. It was undeniable. It was irrefutable. And so they have no conclusion but to ask this. This cannot be the son of David, can it? This is not a statement of disbelief, by the way. Rather, this is one of absolute astonishment. What they're asking is this. Is this the son of David? This can't be. They're they're in amazement. They're in shock. This can't be the son of David. Now, who is the son of David? The son of David, this isn't just some random designation or title. It's a reference to the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which states that God himself will raise up a son of David to be the eternal king of Israel. God made a covenant, an unconditional covenant. I will, I will raise up a son from the line of David. He will be the anointed one. He will be the Messiah. And in the Greek, the word is he will be the Christ. This anointed one. And the people, they were expecting this man to come. They didn't know who he was, where he's coming from, when he's going to get here. But they were all longing for this son of David to come and deliver them. And they were promised this in Isaiah 9, that the government would rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
and furthermore, that there would be no end of the increase of his government or of his peace. The rest of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. They wanted that. They were excited and waiting for this. When are we going to get this eternal, righteous kingdom? When is the son of David going to come? Now they knew that the Messiah, the son of David, would come. But the Jews believed that he was going to perform signs and wonders when he got there. So they, they were prepared for that. That's how he's going to authenticate his ministry. Only three key periods of time in biblical history do we see this, this, uh, this uh, arrival of such miracles and powers and mighty works. And the arrival of Christ was the definitive one. But they, they were waiting for him to come with signs and wonders. In fact, John the Baptist asks Jesus if he is the coming Messiah... And Jesus responds to John, not by saying, yes, I am. He responds by quoting Isaiah 35. Remember this from a couple months ago? Jesus says, the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Jesus says, that's how you're going to know that the Son of Man, the Son of David has come. These things are going to start to happen. And so when the people saw that these things were happening right in front of their eyes, that was their conclusion. They had no other choice. They, they could, they, it was un, undisputable or indisputable. No choice but to conclude that this had to be the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David. Has to be. What do the Pharisees say? Verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Frankly, this verse is hard to read. And when you really spend a lot of time on verses 22 and 23, it gets even harder. Because after witnessing the loving kindness and the mercy and the sweetness and the tenderness of Jesus toward this poor, helpless man, again, I contend the most helpless, sad, afflicted person in all the Gospels that Jesus heals. He's the worst off. This poor, you would have looked at him with such pity. Your heart would have broken for this man. Can someone do something? And then Jesus does. You would have praised him. And then in response to such an amazing, miraculous, lovely affection, they respond this way. A gut punch in verse 24. I want you to notice that the, the Pharisees, they don't try to refute the miracle at all. They don't say a peep about the miracle because they can't. It's obvious to them. There's no denying the miracle. So what they try to do instead is they try to attribute Jesus' power to perform this wonderful miracle to that of Beelzebul. Who's Beelzebul? Well, we saw this back in chapter 9, verse 34. Beelzebul literally means Lord of the dung heap. And it's a nickname for Satan. It's Satan. And so their accusation against Jesus to try to undo him is that he used the power of Satan to cast out this demon and restore this man back to full health. That's their logic. That's their reasoning. How does Jesus respond? Now, if you're, if you're like me, 
in our humanness, you would have expected Jesus to fly off the handle at this accusation. Because this is offensive, is it not? This is, this is pretty awful. I mean, if, if I'm Jesus and I'm standing there, and certainly we're not, how, how could you not say, how dare you? Shame on you. Who do you think you are? Do you know who you're talking to? That, that would have been my reaction. How about you? That makes the most sense, but Jesus doesn't do that. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. In fact, he's pretty metered in his reply, at least at the beginning, but we're going to see that what he actually does say is far more damning than anything he could say in passion in the moment. Look at verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, it appears that Jesus is employing the use of his divine faculties to understand their motives even deeper. It says that he, uh, he was knowing their thoughts. He could see their, and know their thoughts. But he responds with very simple logic. This is so simple, very straightforward. He says essentially this, if a kingdom goes to war against itself, it will only destroy itself. And you and I, as logical thinking people, say, well, of course that's true. Or if a city or a house is divided and fights against itself, it won't survive. This is called an axiom, a self-evident truth. Then he applies this truth in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 26. Same logic. He says, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. And then he brings in the logic of the previous sentiment. He says, how then will his kingdom stand? If, if this self-evident truth is, is apparent to you, that, that a kingdom or a house divided against itself can't survive, then how can Satan attack Satan and his kingdom survive? Answer me that. So he's using very simple logic, but what he's done is he's replaced the word kingdom and city and house with Satan. If Satan fights against Satan, who loses? And the answer is Satan, right? Pretty straightforward. And then he does this. After that's kind of laid out there, and, you can, and you've got you to be in the room with them and know that the crowd is kind of looking around going, pretty straightforward, and the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, oh boy, where is he going with this? Verse 27 is where he goes. If I, by Beelzebul, Satan, cast out demons, watch this, guys, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now he turns the tables. They expect him to keep on going with this logic, but he turns it around. Genius. He says, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, then how do your sons do this? Demons obviously belong to the kingdom of Satan, of Beelzebul, but again, he doesn't defend himself. His logic is irrefutable. His case is already made, but then he he says rhetorically, how do your sons do this? How do, how do your sons cast them out? Now, he's no doubt referring to the sons of Israel. Those who have been doing the same ministry for the sake of the people. So all the priests and the Levites and any of those who would belong to this priestly order that would go and minister to those who are afflicted. We know that there were cases where the priests would go to those who were struggling with things like ailments and demon possession, and they would try to minister to them and, and cast out demons and heal people, and he, they would try to do this kind of ministry. And so if one of their priests 
were to cast out a demon, he's saying, does that priest or one of your sons, do they do this by the power of God or by the power of Satan? He's putting them on the hook. How are you guys going to answer that question? Because here's the thing. If they say by the power of God, they can't logically conclude that Jesus is then doing this by the power of Satan. And if they want to be consistent and argue against the way that they're arguing against Jesus, if they're they're consistent and not logical, but if they're consistent, then they have to admit that their own sons are casting out demons by the power of Satan and therefore incriminating themselves. So which is it, guys? Do your priests and sons cast out demons by the power of God? Or are they doing what you're accusing me of doing and casting them out by the power of Satan? What do you say? You have nothing to say, which is why he concludes the next line, for this reason they will be your judges. How do you like that? They'll judge you. I'll let you deal with how your sons cast out demons, and when when you land there, they'll deal with you. In other words, if you're going to accuse them of the same thing you're accusing me, good luck. But if if you're going to say that this is by the power of God, then they're going to convict you that you're wrong about me. You see that? It's pretty remarkable. I'll let you deal with it. He's not going to judge them. They're going to judge them. But then he says this in verse 28. Here's... Here's the home run pitch here, or the hit. Verse 28, but, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If in the final analysis Jesus is doing all these wonderful works by the power of God, it's interesting Luke 11, inciting the same thing, renders that Jesus says, by the finger of God. Now he could have said that at a different time, but the idea is the same thing. He's using the power, the the touch, the finger of God to do something amazing. And if that's really true, if this miracle is really divine, then the kingdom of God is upon you. Now what does this mean? Does he mean that the final kingdom, the end of the age, is actually here right now? Not yet. Not yet. But if he really is the son of David, the king of Israel, if the king of Israel is on planet earth, then the kingdom is with him. And this is the beginning. And then he refers back to simple logic. Look at verse 29. Just to put a a period at the end of the sentence. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. He's already proven that Satan can't be destroyed by the power of Satan, but Jesus comes into this world dominated by satanic influence and binds him for a time. And when he does that, he begins carrying off what is rightfully his. And what is that? The souls of those who are trapped in bondage and are now being set free. That's what this other man represents, the demon-possessed man. He'd been entrapped and enslaved. Now certainly this man is sinful at his core. Everybody has a sinful nature. All people have a sinful nature. And this man is demon-possessed. We don't know how this came to be. But the bottom line is that Jesus has come into the world and he has released this man from bondage. And he has saved this man. And he's restored this man. See, there are only 
two kingdoms. That's it. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, which is full of light and life and salvation and peace. And then there is the kingdom of Satan, full of darkness and death and slavery to sin. Friends, there is no middle way. There is no middle way. And there is no neutral ground. Look at the world today. There are only two kingdoms. Light or dark. Righteousness or wickedness. That's it. That's it. Either you love the world and the things that are in the world, or you love Christ and you love the righteousness of God. And the reality is this, and this is why Jesus says this in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus puts the listener on the horns of the whole issue here. And the Pharisees, they want to accuse him of doing things by the power of Satan. And the answer is, I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, I'm doing it by the power of God. And you have to choose which you're going to align with. You're going to accuse me of satanic influence? Then you've made your bed and your sons will judge you. Otherwise, you have to conclude that I'm God in human flesh and I'm here to judge the unrighteous and restore and redeem what is mine. We've seen this all along too, even back to his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Even back in Matthew chapter 7, what does he say? There's a broad way. And what does that lead to? Destruction. Then there's a narrow way, which leads to what? Life. There's only two ways. The broad and the narrow. He says, pick one. That's how he lands his sermon. Which way are you going to pick? And then he tells the listener, enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. It's difficult. It's going to be hard. There's opposition. It's going to be painful. But that's the only way that leads to life. Through Christ. And so that is the way of Christ. So there's, again, two ways. The way of Christ and the way of Antichrist. And don't mistake this, friends. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well and working on this planet. If you don't think that's true, wake up. And so what do we see when we look around at the world? Do we see righteousness, holiness, Purity? Godliness? Or do we see selfishness and wickedness and evil? And it might be easy to say, well, I'm just going to stay in the middle path. I don't want to get too far into any one camp. I'm just going to play it safe. But here's the problem with that. Christ does not give that option. He doesn't give that option. Either you're with Christ or you're against Him. Again, there's no middle way. I'm good with Jesus, but I do my own thing. That does not exist in the economy of Christ. You're either gathered to Him, or in time, you'll run away from Him. And I'll tell you, when things pick up, and they're picking up even now, when when life gets even more difficult, when all the chips fall, when everything comes crashing down, where will you land? Will you land on the side of Christ? Will you love Him? Will you obey Him? Will you follow Him? Will you pledge your heart and your faith and your repentance to Him? Will you serve Him? Will you confess Him? 
even when it becomes illegal? Will you hold to his righteousness and his truth? There are certain things that you cannot say in the public square that are patently true. You say them anyway. Will you land there? Or will you, like the Pharisees, find some way, some exegetical or philosophical way to deny him? And I'll tell you, that's getting easier and easier by the day. Right now, it's popular to deconstruct and deconvert. You know what that's called? That's called the great apostasy. That's not deconstruction. You're either in Christ or you're not. And so we are forced to reckon with verse 30, my friends. He who is not with me is against me. Are you with Christ? Are you with him? Paul likes to say it this way. Are you in Christ? Do you belong to him? Do you love him? Do you have faith in him? Do you trust him? Do you confess your sins to him? Do you find your life and your joy and your peace and your purpose in Christ? Or do you find your identity and your joy and your excitement and your passion and your heart in the world and the things of the world? Well, John warns us the things of the world are passing away. What does it mean to be with Christ? It means that you acknowledge that you have sinned against a holy God and must be forgiven. And you seek your forgiveness from God through the sacrifice of Christ. And by faith you trust in His death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. You understand and you believe that your sins would cast you into hell, except that Christ saves you by His own sacrifice, by His own blood. And by faith you trust in Him. And say, without you I've got nothing, and so with you I've got everything. I trust in you for eternal life. And in so doing, your hope is in Christ. Friends, do not put your hope or try to put your hope in the things of this world. In governments and powers and programs and people, it's, it's all for nothing. They will fail you. And if you haven't seen that yet, wake up. They're failing us even now. There's no hope in the systems of the world. There's only hope in Christ. Do you live a life of godliness that seeks to please Him? When things are tough, do you dig in with the Lord? Do you you get fervent in your prayer life? Do you tackle the Scriptures and wrestle? Do you ask Him for help? Do you die to yourself and seek to put to death and mortify your own sinfulness? Do you draw near to other believers in fellowship and mercy and loving kindness? Do you rally to the church? Do you you draw strength from the gathered assembly? We're here for a reason. We're not meant to live this Christian life by ourselves annexed somewhere else. There's strength in the assembly. There's strength in loving each other and praying for each other and even hugging each other. There's strength in drawing close to each other. Why? Because there's strength in drawing drawing close to Christ. And His Spirit resides here within us. Draw near to Christ and to His people. Be found in Him. Because He who is not with Him is against Him.
and he who does not gather to him will scatter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by these words. I know I certainly am. That we might be found in Christ, O Lord. That we would not be like the Pharisees. And Father, have mercy on us. It's so easy for us to look at them and say, oh, they're they're the, the bad ones. We're the good ones. But Father, guard our hearts because there exists inside each of us the same propensity towards sin. And backed into a corner, Lord, you know our deceitful hearts are desperately wicked. We would turn on Christ except for your grace that you've called us to yourself, redeemed us in the blood of the Lamb and given us life in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would give us bold confidence in our Lord to gather close to Him, to draw near to Him, that He might even embrace us and even kiss us, Lord, and be close to us. And I pray that as these days draw even more wicked and severe, that you would remind our hearts and encourage our hearts to draw near to Christ. Let this be a a sober warning, but also a welcome comfort to us. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here, who are gathered this morning, who are hurting, who are struggling, who have no rest and no peace in this moment, I pray that you would encapsulate them with your love. And if it's because they don't know you yet, I pray that you would break down the walls of their heart, convict them of their sin, and draw them to you by faith. That they would run to you, asking for forgiveness and receiving it because of the work of Christ. But for those of us who belong to you, that we might draw near and find sweet grace from you. Oh Lord, you are our only hope. And you are the loving, kind, and sovereign God who heals the most afflicted of us. You've had mercy on such a man who is blind and mute and demon-possessed. Would you also have mercy on us? The Bible says you do. So thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to respond with faith, praise, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.